The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. Those of us who've been on integrity teams just sort of struggling for years in the trenches of, you know, doing research, doing experiments, finding out all the ways that these platforms are failing, trying to propose changes and sometimes winning, but often losing. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 4th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. There's been a lot of news recently about Facebook, and a lot of that news has focused on the frustration of employees assigned to the platform's civic integrity team, or other corners of the company focused on ensuring user trust and safety. If you read reporting on the documents leaked by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, you'll see again and again how these Facebook employees raised concerns about the platform and proposed solutions, only to be shot down by executives. That's why it's an interesting time to talk to two former Facebook employees who both worked on the platform's civic integrity team. This week, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Sahar Masachi and Jeff Allen, who recently unveiled a new project, the Integrity Institute, aimed at building better social media. The goal is to bring the expertise of current and former tech employees to better inform the ongoing discussion around if and how to regulate big social media platforms. We didn't want to ask them to break their NDAs, so we didn't talk about their time at Facebook. But we did dig into the details of what they feel the Institute can add to the conversation, the nitty-gritty of some of the proposals around transparency and algorithms that the Institute has already set out, and what the mood is among people who work in platform integrity right now. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 4th. What is integrity? In social media. Jeff and Sahar, you recently founded the Integrity Institute, which, great name, by the way, fantastic branding. I'm not sure anyone could be against integrity, um, but it's not necessarily self-explanatory exactly what the Institute is aimed at and what your goals are. So I'm hoping you can give our listeners just a bit of background to start about what the Integrity Institute is going to be working on and what you hope to achieve. Well, first off, thank you for having us. What an honor, what a joy. So the Integrity Institute, we are a think tank that advances the theory and practice of protecting the social internet. And we're powered by our community of integrity professionals. So to impact that a little bit, integrity professionals are the people who know in detail the systemic reasons problems on social media exist and how to build them in ways that mitigate or avoid those problems. So we're gathering all the integrity professionals into one place, building a thriving community, and then drawing from that, sort of figuring out the science of of integrity and being a think tank that can talk to companies or people in public policy or the public or anyone who really needs to know or wants to know how it all works. And when we talk about integrity, it's one of those terms that's kind of an industry term or a term of art. And maybe everyone has a slightly different definition. For me, integrity on social platforms is thinking about sort of a systemic way of thinking about information ecosystems and how they all work 
and you know, it has connotations of structural integrity. So if cybersecurity is protecting your platform from hackers who want to hurt the platform, and ethics is protecting people from companies, integrity is protecting people from each other and thinking sort of how to do that from a systemic way rather than like a one-on-one content moderation way. Maybe Jeff has a different way of putting it. You know, the, the thing that makes our community a little bit different from other organizations in this in this space is that we are people who have had experience working on the platforms directly tackling these problems. So everyone in our community has, you know, confronted these head on and had to make the tough choices that you have to make, like when you're at a platform on these. You have a really interesting line on your site where you write, despite everything, we still believe in the internet. And I'd be interested to hear what both of you think you mean by that. So despite what, and what about the internet do you still believe? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think it's too controversial to say that, you know, the the world has been waking up over the past five years or so that harm can occur on on social media and on the internet, right? It's not going to be this sort of idyllic utopia that technologists were were dreaming of in the 90s. It's going to be sort of like a human place that has a lot of the human flaws that come along with it. And as integrity workers, we've seen a bunch of that and we've confronted it head on. We've confronted on, you know, we've confronted hate groups head on and violent organizations and, you know, all sorts of all sorts of like harmful content and harm that can occur on the internet. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe we've earned the right to be jaded a little bit, but at the same time, we still do believe in the promise of the internet and of the social internet specifically. Yeah, I agree with that. And to to put maybe a little bit more of a personal spin on it, when I was in high school, I was the sort of person who was reading Lawrence Lessig's blog and I'd been on Slashdot since I was, I don't know, nine, 11, something like that. You know, I was one of those cyber utopians you know, if you go to my childhood bedroom, you'll see Jonathan Zittrain, the future of the internet and how to stop it. Tim Wu, the master switch, or I might be getting the authors and the titles mixed up a little bit, but Clay Shirky, that I really bought into that and really bought into this sense of we were building something amazing and new together as a civilization. As Jeff said, when every day you're confronted by the terrible things that people can do to each other online, And the way that these technologies that we were so excited about maybe make that worse or amplify it, it's just really easy to get jaded. And I think that right, maybe like understandably so, maybe rightfully so. But part of our stance, I think, is just it is possible to have a good internet or the good internet. It is possible to have social media that doesn't suck. Not only is it possible, it's not even only theoretically possible. There's an entire profession of people who are thinking about not just thinking, but also experimenting and looking at data and validating how you would do it right if you wanted to. And that's tremendously exciting. I think that some quarters of a public discourse, people don't know just how advanced these conversations are and how many solutions are out there. If only the companies you know, would implement them. Yeah. And so, you know, as an integrity worker, as someone who's, you know, knee deep in the information, the online information ecosystem every day, you know, it's not uncommon for you to be surprised by some, you know, some sort of new problem that you would never have predicted. 
it's also possible to come across things that are like new and exciting about the internet that the internet enables. You know, both these happen on a regular basis when you're, you know, wading through the internet e- information ecosystem. And we just, you know, through it all, we believe that we can have a social internet that leans more heavily on the good things than the bad. So who is your audience? You you say, you know, you want to make people understand that there's this community of people with expertise in sort of how to address the problems with platforms. Are you aiming primarily to speak to the platforms themselves, to the public, to policymakers? I, I noted in an article written in Protocol by a friend of the pod, Issy Lepowski, she, she notes that you've already briefed members of Congress. So are you hoping to prompt platforms to engage in better self-regulation or are you hoping for smarter government regulation? Oh man, what a question. I think that every organization has a special sauce, right? The thing that makes them interesting and different. And for most organizations, the answer is what they do and what their strategy is. And maybe we're a little different. I think our special sauce is who we are. We are a organization of integrity professionals. And up until very recently, getting in touch with integrity professionals has been very difficult. We see ourselves as honest brokers. We also use the term infrastructure and we're here and standby ready to help everyone. You know, we're not whistleblowers. We're technical experts. So when we talk to Congress, we're sort of just educating them and helping them think through how does it all work and same thing to you know journalists and same thing to companies and the public and academics it would be wonderful for us if we started talking more to all those groups and we just have a bunch of different ideas of what we could do and i guess i'll get into those but i just really want to ground us in we're not really wedded to any one strategy of what to do exactly because our special sauce is more like who we are and the knowledge we have. And if you think about it, our three points of what we want to do are gather this community is number one. And number two is enrich, nurture, define the knowledge that comes from this community and then disseminate it. And number three, be an open source integrity team. And so can I, can I butt in actually? What, so yeah, what do you mean by open source there? Because I think that's interesting phrasing. Yeah. So integrity work isn't exactly new, right? It's, it's been going on, you know, you can date it back to like the early days of the internet, like early anti-spam teams, you know, Google search, you know, had a comprehensive view of like what they considered web spam. Um, so they had teams thinking about like, oh, how are people like, using our platform for, you know, very narrow gain that isn't benefiting our users. And so there's a lot of history here, but typically, even though, even though integrity has been around a long time and there's many people who've been working here for, you know, working in this space for, for decades, a lot of this knowledge has just been locked up in the companies themselves. And there hasn't been an organization to sort of share that knowledge, um, like among companies, uh, among workers, among the public. So, so part of sort of the open source integrity team is just unlocking a lot of like the intuitive knowledge that people gain from their experiences working on this. And then another is, you know, there's this big question of how will we know uh, when the social media platforms are good enough or doing a good job, right? Right now, you know, we're sort of trapped in this 
well, there's some data, you know, that the companies point to that say they're good. There's data that points to that says they're bad. How do we really comprehensively build systems in the public where everyone can sort of agree on how we grade the platforms and if they're doing an acceptable job or not? I don't know if this counts as pillar two, which is enrich and disseminate knowledge, or pillar three, which is be an open source integrity team. But a thing that we're really inspired by is sort of our understanding of what happened with cybersecurity in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so an organization we talk about is OWASP. And the story of OWASP, as I understand it, is the internet was becoming more of a thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And a bunch of senior security people got together and said, we need to start collaborating. And we need to start having a shared vocabulary around the kind of attacks that are happening on our platforms or on our um, sites or whatever. So, you know, this is what a SQL injection attack is. This is what cross-site scripting is. I don't know, maybe this is what our buffer overflow attack is, though I imagine that was known already. And now that we know what it is, we can start talking about mitigations uh, across industry because this should be a thing that everyone knows how to do. And this should be a thing that every cybersecurity professional knows how to prevent. And, and society is better off when these are the table stakes. And that's kind of what we're trying to do as well. And you can imagine in the future, there are going to be standards bodies. And you can imagine that these standards bodies will start figuring out things like how to do integrity well. And it's going to be important to have an integrity team at the table at these standards bodies that is sort of not-for-profit and for the public, as opposed to everyone there being representative of a company. Kind of in the same way that, I don't know, Mozilla has a role to play in JavaScript or or web standards right now, I imagine. I'm not an expert in this. And of course, you can imagine us doing just research on open source data and releasing it to the public of just as academics might do research on platforms using tools like CrowdTangle, like we can do that as well. And we have the ability to say, you know, this is our own spin on it because we sort of understand how these systems work more intimately than most anyone else. Couldn't agree more with you that, you know, we're iterating towards a world where we're going to need standards bodies. And part of that is just getting more transparency and trying to work out, you know, what should this even look like? Like, it's still mind boggling to me how recent it is that the public, the broader public had any insight at all into all of these systems. You know, it was only, I think, 2018 that Facebook's community standards finally became public. And so it's been a wild ride and it's sort of, it's not surprising that we don't have industry standards as yet, but it's certainly true that these problems aren't going away. Obviously, we all live online and are going to continue living online until we live in the metaverse when these problems will still exist. And so we are going to need to sort of sort them out as society more broadly. But I guess to play devil's advocate, you know, you're totally right that you have a unique perspective and insider knowledge. You've seen how this works. You've been at the at the coalface. You've you've earned the right to be jaded. But there's also this, you know, this trope that one commentator called the the prodigal tech bro, right? Of people who worked in these companies and then, you know, come out and and uh, sort of reformed and and want to fix the systems. And so I'm interested 
from that perspective, why on your on your website it says that the institute is people who are currently employed or were previously employed by tech companies. And so, I mean, it's obviously true that you do have unique experience that brings unique insight, but it's also, you know, you can also understand why maybe when we're thinking about industry standards and best practices going forward, people from the tech companies aren't necessarily the only people that we'd want involved in those conversations. So I'm wondering if you can speak to to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, of course, right? A phrase that we had in one of our early sort of who we are, what we want to be decks was we are integrity partisans and not partisans of anything else. That is to say, we're trying to represent one point of view and represent it well and not try and represent all points of view. And we know that we're in a larger ecosystem. You know, there's just things to care about other than integrity. For example, privacy or market power or growth. There are perspectives other than that of integrity professionals. You know, we are going to be in conversation with and partner with organizations representing those perspectives. The thing about tech bros, it's hard for me to talk about this in a way that is measured. Let's see. I think that there is a real difference between someone who was happily making a paycheck on, let's say, a growth team or an ads team, and then decides they need to do some reputation washing. And those of us who have been on integrity teams, just sort of struggling for years in the trenches of you know, doing research, doing experiments, finding out all the ways that these platforms are failing, trying to propose changes and sometimes winning, but often losing. You know, we both work for companies, but they're just two very different perspectives. And I think that a way that you could tell that we are not the former is just us and the people we're talking to have spent years in integrity teams like actively day-to-day fighting to make things better. And I think that's just a, a very different perspective. I don't know. It's, it's always hard when someone says, prove that you don't have this mindset. And I don't know, how do you prove it? I guess you prove it through your actions. I think our actions are, you know, you will know us by, by the work we do and we'll prove it over time. And the last thing I'll say on this is if you look on our website, you'll see a tab called our values. If you look at our values, we say, we think that everyone who works in this needs to hold themselves to a standard of ethics that is similar to a Hippocratic oath, or just in the way that lawyers have a duty to their profession larger than their duty to a client. And we list them out. And every member of the Institute and everyone in our community needs to affirm that they hold these values. That's extremely important to me. It's sort of like the bedrock charter of who we are as an organization. I think that's our guiding light and that's what we're going to hold ourselves accountable to. And that's who we are. And if I could add, I would just say it doesn't have to be zero sum. And even when we were at the companies, you know, we were collecting outside experts, you know, sharing what they were arguing for externally, internally, right? To like help arguments internally. So even when you're at the companies, what people are saying externally is absolutely something you want to pay attention to and is incredibly helpful and valuable when you're making the case internally. And so 
you know, it doesn't have to be zero sum, you know, like we're not in competition with anyone. And, and we really just want to build a place where people who have this kind of experience working on the platforms directly can be put to better use. Um, you know, one thing we saw from people uh, leaving uh, integrity work was, you know, it was, it, they were kind of scattering around. Some people were going, you know, back into other tech companies, you know, some people here and there were taking academic jobs, but there wasn't really a home in the public space for integrity workers specifically. And one of our bets is just that, you know, if we can create a home for integrity professionals in the public space, this can be, you know, leveraged by any other organization that wants to, you know, tap into this, right? It can be used by academics, can be used by independent researchers, can be used by policymakers. So, you know, we don't necessarily see ourselves in competition with people. Uh, We're not trying to launder our reputations. We're just trying to like make this expertise available to everyone. So I want to talk a little bit about how you understand the sort of the community that you're building here, because your your pitch deck talks a lot about the sort of the consensus view of integrity professionals, and that's a direct quote. And I'm I'm really interested at how you're arriving at what you think of as consensus, especially because you know there is so much disagreement uh, within academia, within tech companies about how you know we should go about implementing transparency, which is something we'll talk about in a bit. And especially I was interested because obviously both of you have worked at Facebook. I know your your fellows are from Facebook, which of course is uh, probably unique in its scale and the sort of specifics of its organizational culture. So how how did you think about going about figuring out what, what constitutes consensus? Like, did you take a poll? How are you thinking about that? So we have a fair number of members and fellows right now. And we think that there are many axes of diversity that we need to care about. And one of them is sort of ideological diversity. So we have some very committed privacy advocates on our team. We have, you know, some people on the like left, right US spectrum, but also we're trying really hard to keep in mind and elevate this sort of the world isn't just the United States and let's step away from partisan US blinders as much as possible and think more about if you talk about dynamics of what's happening in Eritrea or um, Myanmar or the Philippines, that just like clarifies issues a lot more. And we want to keep that in mind. And there's, you know, gender, race, etc. And also platform diversity, and role diversity. And, and that all matters to us. So we've set up a sort of community board that is both our core team of people who are most sort of enthusiastic and like, you know, members who show up and also has a lot of these kinds of diversity in it. And what we did was we had meetings over time at regular intervals where we just discussed what everyone seemed to agree on. We started off with things that everyone automatically just, you know, voted yes or neutral on. And then for the things where there was controversy, we talked about it. Some people, you know, flipped after more discussion and debate, and some people held true to their initial take. And for the former, we added it to the doc. And for the latter, we didn't include it. And in this way, we're sort of approximating our best guess at this is what a consensus of our governing body is. And also, this is where we think 
you know, they are representatives, right? They've, they've had these discussions. They, there's ability to change their mind. It's, it's deeper than just a, a flash poll or something. I think that's really cool. I think that's one of our most powerful things, the ability to say that. I'm sure for any particular point, you might be able to find one or two integrity workers out in the world who say, well, I don't agree with this. And maybe if we were able to talk to them and have them be part of the same discussions, they would change their mind and maybe they wouldn't. But I think that because of this process, any given integrity worker seeing this would say, yeah, I'm not going to hard block this. This is pretty good. And I think that's like the best you can do until you can get all 2000 or whatever integrity workers in the world to sit down for, you know, a 20 day conference. So let's turn to some of the sort of specific recommendations that you have then, because I think these are really, really interesting uh, and valuable. And it's where, you know, your, your prior expertise and experience working on these issues, I think really comes out. In particular, there's sort of two sets of recommendations around transparency reporting more generally and reporting on algorithmic transparency, which are obviously uh, hot topics right now. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about as well, because obviously I'm a big believer in, in transparency, and I think pretty much everyone in this space is a big believer in transparency. But when we say transparency, it's not always necessarily clear what we mean, uh, transparency of what, to whom you know, what exactly do we want disclosed and what are the purposes of that? And so I'm really excited that we're going to start or that you're, you know, you're going to be helping contribute to a much more nuanced conversation about that. So some of the transparency metrics that you recommend platforms start offering are things like the time delay between harmful content being posted and moderated, average views and reach of harmful content, basic demographic statistics of the viewers of harmful content. And I think a lot of that stuff would be much more insightful than some of the sort of sheer aggregated figures that we get right now. But one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, that sounds really expensive to produce. And I'm not going to lie awake at night losing sleep over, you know, Facebook or YouTube having to devote a few more resources to producing these kinds of metrics. But for smaller platforms, even, you know, Twitter, which is a lot smaller, it sounds like a big burden to track and audit and produce these metrics. But I'm wondering if that's accurate. Like, I obviously have no idea. I've never had to try and produce these metrics, but you two might have from inside the companies. And so I'm wondering, you know, one of the things that I get a lot of pushback on when I talk about this in this space is that by putting huge transparency burdens on platforms, you're actually creating lock-in by making the only companies who are able to comply with them the big platforms. And that's, in fact, why you know Facebook is constantly calling for this kind of regulation. So I'm curious for your reactions to that. Yeah, this is a really important point and, and something definitely worth digging into deeper. So one thing that actually didn't make our consensus points is like how to treat large companies and small companies different and to what extent um, smaller companies should be you know, held to like a less stringent bar here. And so that's something that we're actively trying to figure out in our community and like, what is the best way to balance that? Now, that being said, I think it's worth like taking a step back and asking, what is the goal of transparency, right? It's like, why do we want transparency? Why do we think this is a good idea? And there's there's basically like three reasons why we think it's a good idea or why we, we think the public needs transparency. So one is to just track the overall scale of harm that is occurring on the platform. Two is providing enough information so that the public can, you know, validate the basic numbers there, right? And make sure that, you know, what the platform is saying is accurate. 
And three is so that we can get a sense of if the platform is being designed responsibly or not, right? Like, are, is the platform using best practices like as they go about doing it? I, I feel like this is a pretty minimum bar to set. And, and I think it's very reasonable for us to ask, to have expect expectations here of pretty much any platform that has any sort of sizable user base. And, you know, we do talk about like, what is the different, you know, computational cost, right? Of like different metrics. And, and generally we're, we're fairly happy with this being a pretty broad recommendation. It's something that most platforms hopefully are already tracking or have plans to track, or they just should track, right? Because if a platform doesn't fully understand how and why harms are happening on the platform, you know, that sort of gets into the responsibility question. It's like, well, if you aren't tracking these things properly, are you actually being responsibly here, behaving responsibly here? Yeah, I, I think just like we can go recommendation by recommendation, but I think the vast majority of these should be things that either the platforms are logging already or could easily construct out of their logs. And I think that if you look at them, part of the moat argument is that the metrics that Facebook in particular, that's what I'm most familiar with, uses. So Facebook uses prevalence metrics, and that involves taking a sample of impressions and throwing a bunch of content moderators at those samples to hand label them, and then using that as their grounds point of truth. That's really expensive. Sure. But for everything else, the stuff we're talking about isn't expensive and is actually, you know, just easy, uh, easy and, you know, might take, I don't know, a week, two, three to set up. But once you set it up, it's just automated. Don't quote me on that. I, I haven't gone point by point through these slides to be able to say that definitively, but that's my, um, that's my memory from the last time I checked these documents, you know, a couple of weeks ago. If I may, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the purpose of transparency too, real quick. Part of the genius of a certain kind of San Francisco or Silicon Valley or Bay Area company is to say, we're going to decentralize initiative, but not decentralize power, right? So if you're Mark Zuckerberg and you want to have your, you know, control your company, but not sort of like hire managers to look over everyone's shoulder all the time, then the thing you do is you say, I want these metrics to go up. And broadly speaking, like, workers, it's on you to make these metrics go up the way that you see fit, as long as you don't make the other metrics go down. And in the same way, if we get the right kind of data out of any of these companies, we can just say, hi, we've created metrics for you using your own data of how well you're doing. And we want these metrics to go up. And if they don't go up, then you're in trouble. And it's on you to figure out how to make these metrics grow up and what you're willing to trade. Are you willing to trade profit? Are you willing to trade growth? Are you willing to trade like, you know, actually diving into the guts of it and, and finding clever solutions that, that don't cost growth? That's on you, but you have to hit these metrics targets. That's where I think something like transparency can give us. Uh, that isn't just a sort of, you know, replacement for real, real regulation that has teeth. And I should mention, you know, this is my personal point of view. I'm not speaking as like this theory of, of how you would regulate is not something that's been vetted through the Integrity Institute's sort of process, but it is meant as a sort of um, explanation of why transparency could be really effective. Every member of the Institute has their own sorts of ways of thinking about regulation, what the government should do, et cetera, et cetera. And it's on us to sort of 
build a platform for any fellow to sort of have their perspective be known rather than have a position as an institute ourselves. So I also wanted to ask how this changes sort of platform incentives. So for example, if you imagine platforms, you got platforms to report on how long it takes them to, you know, find violating content or how many people saw that content. Is there a a world in which that makes them sort of have an incentive to change their rules to be laxer? So, you know, if you ask platforms to report how long it takes them to take down content that violates the rules on hate speech, you could imagine, you know, loosening the rules so that less content violates that. And then there's more resources to more quickly respond to content that does violate the rules. Like, how much are you thinking about the danger of sort of creating perverse incentives when it comes to writing metrics? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. And it's something we talk a lot about in our community and try and figure it out. I try to dig deeper on this issue. I mean, we we did come to a consensus here where we think that these are fairly straightforward things to ask and fairly straightforward things to expect that will not create perverse incentives. You know, obviously we think that community standards should be public, right? Like changes to community standards should be public. And so there is an avenue to hold platforms to account. We also expect that there will be competition between the platforms. Obviously, like when 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 platforms have to report more. You know, there's going to be a lot of nuance that they need to communicate in this. And so there are, you know, to a certain extent, they might be holding each other to comprehensive standards on the different community standards violations. Yeah, I agree with all that. And also, we mostly aren't experts in public policy. We don't really have necessarily like too many takes on public policy. This is coming from the perspective of engineers. Like this is if a platform wanted to do a, a very good job at transparency, this is what they do, right? If the public wanted a map of understanding what was happening on platforms, this is the map that they would use. And I think to your specific question, that's why we have four sort of types of data that we want in transparency. And from the top of my head, Jeff can back me up here. It's aggregated data, specific sampled and top data process transparency, and I think algorithmic and design transparency. And the second pillar of sample data is incredibly important precisely for this reason. The public needs to have an ability to sort of audit the companies and sort of have data that they could use to figure out how these companies are doing so that the tricks that you're talking about uh, wouldn't work because we would be able to see them through, through mechanisms like that. Yeah. So it's actually super important uh, that transparency come in sort of a comprehensive package. So that makes a lot of sense to me, but I just want to put you a little bit more on how straightforward this is and on the question of definition. So it seems to me like it seems to me totally correct to say that a lot of these statistics would be really useful in, you know, ascertaining how effective a platform is being in its performance of enforcing its own content moderation rules. But it sort of uh, assumes that prior question of what is harmful content, what is bad content, you know, when you're talking about how many people saw harmful content or how long harmful content was on the site before it got taken down. That assumes that there's a category of harmful content, but I think this is something not only that platforms uh, don't have consensus on, but broader society doesn't have consensus on. You know, we're still really in the throes of this debate about, you know, what constitutes, what, what steps over the line in terms of hate speech or in terms of health misinformation or political misinformation. And so, you know, it seems to me that there's a, a bit of wiggle room in that definition in terms of 
gaming the metrics that way. But also, I'm wondering if you have any ideas about how to go about solving that prior question and, and where that comes from, if you can set that category sort of in any sort of stable or set way to make the metrics more useful and more comparable across platforms. Because it also seems to me that if you have one a definition on one platform and one definition on another platform, the metrics won't necessarily be comparable. This is actually an, an excellent question. And I think I'll sort of lean on what uh, Sahar said earlier, right? Like we're not necessarily public policy experts. And we don't necessarily know where to draw, you know, obviously there's, there's gray, there's gray space in, in every sort of like harmful content variety. There's sort of like a gray space where, you know, it's, it's not unreasonable to draw the line somewhere, you know, in this gray space, but not every platform will line up exactly the same. This is just a really great question. It's a really great challenge. I, I don't know if we have like an excellent answer for this for you. I think we do. I think it's just the answer that I, I had earlier. If you look at our fourth types of transparency, one of our type of transparency is called what's called content-based data sets. And that's the place where if you wanted to verify that the companies had the right kind of definitions, you would be able to see it in the content-based data set. Because they would say in this sample, I don't know, tweet or Reddit post, you know, we think that yes, this is hate speech or no, it is not. And then as the public, you could actually verify it and say like, well, do we agree? And then another pillar we have is process transparency. And that also says, we would like to have the exact definitions of the core metrics that you're using in your experimentation process and your how you assess content quality. So I think there's transparency into how the platforms are doing and like, do their definitions make sense? If the public decides that it doesn't make sense and they want to push the companies to change their definitions. Yeah. That's the part where like, you know, you need to talk to an advocacy organization and that gets into the corporate campaigning, which is a skill that we don't have. And it's just not exactly what we do, but also, and again, we're, we're getting to Jeff and Sahar as fellows of the Institute, as opposed to speaking for the Institute as a whole, we're really excited to talk about how you set up a system with the right incentives and how you set up information flows so that you stop caring about content. I have a talk that I gave at Berkman a while ago, all about this. Jeff has uh, a whole talk that he gives all the time around this as well. And I don't know if you wanted to, we could give you our takes on how you can start thinking about behavior and incentives and systems design and stop thinking so much about individual pieces of content and how to even think about what is violating or not. So I also want to make sure we talk about your proposals about how we should think about algorithms. You have a bunch of specific recommendations about what platforms should make transparent about their algorithms. And one of your suggestions is, you know, we need these things to be public so that the public, members of the public, users of these platforms can understand what platforms are doing. And I'm curious sort of whether you think the public is interested in this. Like I definitely, I'm sort of, I'm with you. I think more having more information available to the public is a good idea, but you know, a shockingly high number of people, I think there's been polling, don't even realize that platforms use algorithms at all. So what do you think the benefit is of the public having more knowledge about these ranking algorithms? Well, I think it's it's as much for the public as it is for 
experts in the public, right, who can be given enough information so that they can form, you know, comprehensive opinions on the algorithms and can actually vet, like, are these designed responsibly or not? I don't, we haven't actually had talked about this as a community. Um, so I'm a little bit out on a limb here, but like how, how I would expect the conversation to go is platforms would put out the details of their algorithms, how they're designed. Experts could come to a consensus of if they're designed responsibly or not. And then the conversation can sort of proceed after that. I mean, like from working on the platforms, right? Like, you know, there's, there's various options to change, you know, in Facebook, you can change it to a chronological feed and Twitter. Now you can change it to a chronological feed. It's not our expectation that people are spending a ton of time thinking about these and flipping back and forth and seeing which one they prefer. You know, most people use the default settings out of the box. Yeah, I wonder what what you both think, Evelyn and Quinta. I mean, this is just like through your democracy stuff, isn't it? It's like the public includes our representatives and includes civil society and includes people of goodwill working at these companies who just really want to know what the right thing to do is. If the information going out to the public isn't necessary, you know, what kind of political system are we in? And and I don't know, feels sort of like a bedrock thing to me. Maybe I'm missing something. No, I completely love that answer. I mean, I'm being a little unfair here. One of the reasons why, and you know, if I'm pushing you really hard on this, it's because a lot of the values that you're reflecting in these principles around transparency and metrics and things like that are, you know, things that I've been thinking about and, and talking about a lot. And I'm getting uh, slammed with a lot of these questions myself. And I think you know, I'm curious for your answers on it. I really do agree in this idea of, you know, transparency is what we do here. And when there's decision makers making decisions that have profound impacts on public discourse and, and society, that we as a, as a society have a right to know about that. And whether, you know, Uncle Joe is necessarily interested in how the algorithm works is not so important as the fact that people who are interested in it can can access that information and hold it accountable. But I do think that there's some real, I mean, one of the things that I think is really, really tricky is this designing of, of metrics that can't be gamed by platforms that are comparable across platforms, but also that are fluid enough. You know, the space moves so quickly and the metrics that we maybe wanted two years ago are not necessarily the metrics that we want today. And so when you're thinking about how to prescribe these in sort of, you know, obviously what I'm thinking about a lot of the time is legislation. I think that that's, that's really, really tricky. And also, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, these are private companies and they do to a certain degree have a right to make their own business decisions. And that, you know, as Talton Gillespie famously says, you know, content moderation is the commodity that platforms offer. And there's this really um, great statement in your slides where you say, ranking and design where the mission and values of a social media company become encoded into the platform. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and what you see as different across different platforms. I mean, if you have specific examples about where platforms have decided to, you know, make different decisions in terms of ranking and design that reflect different values, I'd love to, to hear about that because I think the, the public conception is generally that every social media platform optimizes for engagement um, and that's the values that they embed in their in their products and so I'm I'm curious whether you think that's true or if you do really see a diversity across the industry. Oh yeah, this is this is among my favorite subjects and it's something that like when you're an integrity worker, right? And like when you're working on these platforms, it's something you kind of internalize, right? Like I'm working on this platform, this is the platform you know, like the the content that is succeeding on this platform is sort of a reflection of the work that we do, right? And, and what we value as a company. 
And so it's, it's something that we all kind of like feel personally. And then it's, it's just, it's also kind of true, right? Like what succeeds on your platform is a little bit of, ch- of a choice of the platform itself, right? It's, it is, there's, there's no way to sort of like avoid editorial decisions, right? Like not making editorial decisions isn't of itself an editorial decision. So you're kind of stuck in this cycle. But yes, like mission statements and algorithms and how do you make them work together? So my, my favorite example here actually goes back to Google search. So Google search's mission is to, it's something like make the world's information widely available and useful. And I always say that the most important word in that entire mission statement is useful, right? Because, you know, the concept of useful content, this gives them an anchor to say, oh, this is the type of content that should be ranking higher in Google search. This is the type of content that should be ranking lower in Google search, right? So misinformation should rank lower on Google search because misinformation is not useful, right? Hate speech should rank lower on Google search because hate speech is not useful. And so just having like a concrete sort of philosophy from your mission statement to guide your ranking system is just hugely valuable in in overcoming a lot of these, a lot of the challenges from harmful content, from like problematic content, from bad actors. One of the amazing things that Google search has done, in my view, is the Google search quality evaluator guidelines, which they publish. They are public. You can go read them. And it's sort of like a 60 page, you know, legal document almost of how you define highly useful content or not useful content. And, you know, and in an example uh, paper, they have how Google fights disinformation. And they actually cited those guidelines as one of their key sort of defenses against disinformation, right? Because disinformation just isn't useful. And so their mission sort of mandates that they figure out comprehensive solutions here. You said you don't want to break your NDAs, and we're not going to try to make you do that here. But I do want to ask you a kind of meta question about about your your times at Facebook and the Facebook files slash Facebook papers, whatever we're calling them now. Reading all the press reporting about the Facebook papers, a lot of what's going, you know, what what's being reported is just to you know to me as someone who's paying attention to these platforms is is kind of unsurprising. You know, we learn that the platform had trouble with this and that, but you know, what's what's new about them is you know the the views and concerns of the people inside Facebook that are now becoming public through these leaked documents. So, without touching on the specific question of what you might know, do you think that there are things that the public could learn about platforms that would be surprising? Well, the first thing I'll say is that one thing that these documents lay out really clearly is just the level of professionalism and hard work and dedication that integrity professionals put in. Uh, You can see just like long, passionate notes, marshalling data by people who know what they're doing, talking about these trade-offs and how we need to make better ones. Uh, You can see just a level of sophistication and also commitment to doing the right thing that just shines through from all kinds of different integrity workers. And I think that's really good. And I think that like, People should know that integrity work exists. You know, high schoolers should aspire to work in the field and it should be seen as a glamorous, important, well-respected job. And I think we got a little closer to it from these documents. And I'm really excited about that. And that's a thing that I can point to and feel sort of wholeheartedly positive about. And just as a follow-up to that, what is the vibe in integrity right now? You know, you're saying you hope that 
high schoolers, you know, grow up wanting to be in integrity. And I like couldn't agree more that this is really a job that is just so important and going to be so central to a lot of public debate going forward. But, you know, my impression is that there's also a lot of disillusionment in the community, or at least it sort of seems that way from the sort of exodus and the very fact that you are outside the platforms now rather than inside and some of the frustration that you see in these quitting posts in the Facebook files, right, or Facebook papers. I don't know. I'm getting stuck on the alliteration. So I'm, you know, just curious, you obviously have your finger on the pulse much more than I do what the vibe is about this as a career you know is it something that you would you yourselves would be interested in going back into industry again or you know how how does the community feel about this job right now this is a really great question and i think a lot of people after doing integrity work even though it's hard even though it's challenging even though you see sort of you know badge posts of people frust- of frustrated people you still see I want to say like oh, almost overwhelmingly, like people are still passionate about this field and people still want to be active in it and people still want to work in it. And, you know, part of why we built the Institute is so that, you know, it just felt like a real productive way to be in this space for the long haul. And, you know, there's a lot of people who agree with us. Uh, it's, it's actually really rewarding. And, and yeah, like I, I would say like kind of the opposite happens after you work integrity. Like, you know, people, yes, there's burnout. Yes, there's there's frustration. But I think with that also comes commitment. Yeah, I think when you have your nose rubbed in day after day about kind of how brazen these propaganda campaigns are, and you can point to, this looks like an intelligence agency doing some shady shit or oh, wow, like this, this was a lynching, you know, it's really tough. And it's also tough when you feel like maybe we could have prevented it if only I was allowed to ship the product feature that I wanted to ship that was blocked. It's, it's a really tough feeling. And it's a really tough feeling of just knowing what, what the right thing to do is from the perspective of integrity and being told that other company priorities are going to take precedence. And so that's all true. And I think that there's this real need and desire among integrity professionals to find a way to channel that frustration and channel that commitment to doing the job well and ethically in a productive direction. And so I think the thing we're offering is like, uh, you know, here is a thing that you can do that isn't rage quitting and isn't being a whistleblower, right? This is a thing to do that we hope will work. Uh, it's a thing to do that both like is constructive and useful and pushes the field forward and also takes some of that energy and helps you feel better about the situation that you're in. And I think that's really important as well. The last thing we need is for people to to rage quit and give up and all the like really important knowledge of just what works and what doesn't to be lost. If we do nothing else, just keeping the knowledge alive of what's been tried, what works, like what what sort of like paths are worth pursuing in an NDA respecting way, I think would be really, really important. And just a sort of small follow up on that, because I can I can hear maybe how hard it is for you to talk about this. But I guess the question that that raises is whether, you know, the problem is that these companies don't know what to do 
And so, you know, the recommendations and the consensus ideas that you're coming to are really important as guidance documents. Or whether companies may know what they should do, but they don't want to do it. And that's something, obviously, that comes through in the in the Facebook papers where just as you sort of were alluding to, that there's people who have these answers that are, you know, suggesting product features that they want to ship that they think could mitigate harm and they get overruled. And so I guess the question that I'm sort of getting to there is whether your goal is really to speak to the companies with these recommendations or whether they'll see the recommendations and go, yeah, we know that. And your goal instead is to speak to the public to try and give the public and and regulators levers to put pressure on the companies. Like when when you talk about developing uh, best practices and industry standards, is that because companies don't already sort of know what might be best practices or whether it's because we need to know outside more about what those best practices might be? No company is a monolith. It's sometimes like... For software engineering, we've had, I don't know, 40, 50 years of accumulated understanding of what best practices are. And so you can tell the difference between this junior person is, has a crazy idea and this senior person like knows their shit and I should trust them. In conversations inside of companies, we want to make it clear when the senior person is saying a thing that actually would work, like that you can trust them and that they are senior and helping that forward. And I think that Many people in many companies, including some people in power, want to do the right thing and don't know what it is. And also in some companies, there's always a debate between what to do and when it's really unclear what the right thing to do is, then of course, uh, the default is going to be do the right thing for the company. But when it is clear what the right thing to do is, then at least, you know, it has a fighting chance. We want to approach all companies, including Facebook, wholeheartedly with full hearts and say, we know that companies aren't a monolith. We know that there will always be priorities that aren't just integrity. But if you wanted to know, here it is. And that objection should hopefully be assuaged. And there are a lot of people trying to do the right thing. And at the very least, we can sort of uh, remove this blocker to doing the right thing. I think the thing that we're getting at is just we're honest brokers. We're honest brokers to companies. We're honest brokers to big ones, small ones. We're honest brokers to the public, policymakers, et cetera. And I think we really can be in that space. And I, I guess like you're setting up a choice and, and we don't think that really is a choice. We can do both. Yeah. I mean, and, and to sort of take a different angle on this and, and to zoom out, you know, just from Facebook, um, there's a lot of companies in this space. Uh, there's going to be a lot of companies in this space in the future, right? Like TikTok is not the last social media platform that humanity will exist. There's going to be other ones that come in the future. And we should expect sort of a wide variety of behaviors from these companies as they turn on. And so we just want to be here. We just want to like help integrity professionals get the message out. Uh, and we want to help, you know, everyone who wants to make progress in this space, whether it's within the companies themselves or it's through public policy. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to both of you for coming on and talking about this. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com backslash lawfare. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>